how about I pray for us um, as we begin? Let's pray, um, and then then we'll get cracking on. So let's let's pray together. Our gracious heavenly Father, we we thank you so much that no matter where we are, when we pick up your Bible and we read it, Father, you speak to us. Uh, Father, thank you that even though we can't meet uh, in uh, as a church, uh, a, a, a collection of your people t- uh, this evening, we th- we thank you that that even though uh, we are separated. Um, that you bring us together uh, through the unity that we have in Christ, uh, that you bring us together uh, under your word right now. And so, Father, I do pray that as we, we unpack uh, these words in, in John 16, that you would speak to us, you would remind us of your love for us, and that you would comfort us uh, in this time of chaos. And we pray all of these things, Father, for the glory of Jesus and for his good. In his name we pray. Amen. When I was younger, I had a source of of comfort. Uh, It was a little pillow that I took everywhere. I remember being about six years old, and mum or dad would drop me off at school, and and before I got out of the car, I'd I'd give my little pillow a great big sniff and a cuddle. And then I'd leave the pillow in the car and then head into school for the day. Then every afternoon when I got picked up, I'd get back in the car after a big day, and the first thing that I'd do, would I'd, I'd grab my little pillow, give it a great big sniff and a cuddle. After a big day, that little pillow was my source of comfort. But you know what? We, we all grow up eventually, and we stop finding comfort in other stuff. Well, that's, that's not entirely true, is it? After I've had a big day, and once Lauren and I have got the kids in bed at night, the first thing I do... I head to the kitchen, grab the snacks, I head to the living room, grab the remote, turn on Stan and start watching Grey's Anatomy with Lauren. Grey's Anatomy and snacks is now my new source of comfort. See, when I've had a big day and the world just feels crazy and chaotic, and because that's the kind of world that we're living in right now, right? It, it's, the coronavirus is just making the world crazy and chaotic. And when I want to escape at the end of the day, Grey's Anatomy and snacks is my source of comfort in the chaos. Where's your source of comfort right now? In all the chaos that's been going on around you, where have you been turning to for comfort? Have you been sinking into the content of Netflix or Stan or Disney Plus? Has it been music? You know, once those noise-canceling headphones are on, nothing in the world, nothing exists in the world except for you and your music. Is it your garden? Have you been escaping to nature to distract you from the chaos of COVID-19? Is it the gym? Is it your phone? Is it your laptop? Is it Facebook? Where have you been turning for comfort? Because we all have somewhere we go for comfort in this crazy chaotic world. So, so where have you been turning for that comfort? And what do you think would happen... If someone told you that you're about to lose that source of comfort, how would you respond to that? That's that's actually the very situation that Jesus' disciples find themselves in in our passage today in John 16. Their comfort for the past three years or so has been a man who's been there for them through all kinds of crazy chaos. When their friend Lazarus dies in, in John chapter 11, Jesus is the one who's there to comfort the disciples and walk beside them and even grieve with them. Jesus has been there for these guys when no one else has. And yet our passage begins today with Jesus telling these guys again that he's going to leave them. Have a read from verse 5. Jesus says, But now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you asks me where are you going. Rather, you're filled with grief 
because I've said these things. See, Jesus has been there for these guys when no one else has. And now their one source of comfort is being taken from them. To get some context, for the past few chapters, Jesus has been talking about how his hour has come. And he's, he's been referring to his death. See, in a few hours, he's going to be hanging from a cross by his hands and feet, suffocating to death, and he knows that that moment is coming. And even though he knows, he's doing nothing to stop it. He's letting it come. See, for the past three years or so, Jesus has been to these disciples, their whole world, and now Jesus is saying to them, you're about to go through even greater grief than Lazarus' death, and I'm not going to be there for you when you do. The disciples, they're speechless. Did you see that there in verse 5? No one is asking questions. They're speechless. Their whole world's falling apart around them because the moment they need Jesus most, he's bailing. Their one source of comfort is leaving. Now, I was going to compare this to when I was a kid. Imagine if I was to come home from school and my little pillow wasn't there. But this is so much bigger than that, isn't it? Because the, the, the disciples, they haven't been putting their comfort in a thing. No, their comfort is in a person. No, more than that, their comfort's in a guy who's got the power to heal the sick and raise the dead. How is it that this guy who's got all the power in the world can be leaving those who need him most? Leaving isn't loving. And then to make matters worse, not only are the disciples grieving, but we see down in verse 16 that all this talk of Jesus leaving is just causing hurt and confusion for the disciples. Have a look at what he says in verse 16. Verse 16 we read, Jesus went on to say, In a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you'll see me. At this some of the disciples said to one another, Notice they're not turning to Jesus at this moment for answers and for comfort right now. No, no they're turning to each other. At some of this, the disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you'll see me? And because I'm going to the Father. They kept asking, What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. So the disciples, they're so confused about why Jesus is leaving. In verse 19, Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you'll see me? Then verse 20, Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, you'll weep and mourn while the world rejoices. So if you've been uh, following along the last few weeks, you'll know that the disciples, they've, they've heard some pretty unsettling stuff up to this point. Chapters 13 to 17 is just one big night for these guys, and it's the night right before Jesus' death. In a matter of a few short hours, because that's what chapters 13 to 17 are, just a few hours. In a few short hours, the disciples have been told that Judas, one of their closest friends, is going to betray Jesus. They've also been told that Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, is going to deny Jesus multiple times. And they've been told that Jesus is going to leave them. Their world is in utter chaos. Everything's falling apart around them. And they don't have Netflix or a set of headphones to help them escape or block out that chaos. They're scrambling to find comfort in each other because Jesus isn't going to be around much longer. And the parting words that Jesus gives them is that they're going to weep and mourn and grieve while the world around them rejoices. Soon their best mate Jesus is their one source of comfort 
is going to be hanging on a cross, breathing his last breath, and everyone except Jesus' disciples are going to be cheering. They're going to be celebrating because they've just put an end to Jesus' life. What an awful place for Jesus to leave his closest friends. Jesus leaving seems to be causing a huge problem for these guys. But is Jesus leaving as bad as it seems? Or is it actually a good thing that he leaves? See, as we get into the guts of this passage, we're actually going to see that it is a good thing that Jesus is leaving. Because even though the disciples are frantic, even though they feel like they're about to lose their one source of comfort, Jesus wants them to know that it's actually a good thing that he's leaving. And he begins to tell them this in verse 7. Take a look at Jesus' words from verse 7. He says, But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the, the advocate won't come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. So Jesus is saying it's, it's important that he leaves. It's for their good, and it's a loving thing for him to leave. So it's not that Jesus loves to leave. It's actually that he leaves to love. And he's leaving so he can send the advocate back. Now, this, this word advocate might sound a bit strange to you, and not for me, because I grew up in Coffs Harbour. See, when you live in Coffs Harbour, you receive the advocate every Wednesday and Saturday. Okay, so, so the advocate Jesus is referring to here is the Holy Spirit, and the Coffs Coast advocate is actually just a newspaper. So not exactly the same thing, but the concept actually isn't too different. See, a newspaper, it has one job, and that's to give us the news. And the advocate that Jesus is talking about here, the Holy Spirit, well, he's got a whole bunch of jobs, but one of his jobs is to bring us news. What kind of news? Well, that's what Jesus explains from verse 8. He says in verse 8, The Holy Spirit will come to prove the world to be in the wrong about sin, about righteousness, and about judgment. So this advocate, this Holy Spirit, this good thing that Jesus is going to send when he leaves, is going to bring us news. And not just biased journalism, but real, truthful, and confronting news. He's going to reveal to the world the real, truthful news about sin, about righteousness, and about judgment. Now, if you're new to church, these, these words, these three words, sin, righteousness, judgment, they might sound a bit foreign to you. I'll be honest, I've been around churches for a while, and even I can struggle to make sense of what these words mean sometimes. So, so what do they mean? Or, or more specifically, what does Jesus mean when he uses these words here? Well, let's have a look at what the text says. In verse 9, Jesus says that sin, it's our first word, sin is when people don't believe in him. So sin is rejecting Jesus, not trusting that Jesus is God's son. And then in verse 10, Jesus says that righteousness, our second word, righteousness is him going to the Father. It's having the right to be with God. And the only way we're given the right to be with God and are made right before God is through trusting in the only person who is right before God. It's through trusting in Jesus, that he is God's son. And judgment, our third word, judgment, well, Jesus says in verse 11 that judgment will result in the prince of the world being condemned. Now, if, if rejecting Jesus is sin, then, then why doesn't Jesus just say that judgment is the condemning of our individual sins? Why does he mention this prince of the world? 
Well, it's because he's talking about a bigger, darker power that sits behind our rejection of Jesus, our rejection of God. And it's the work of Satan, that crafty liar who's been spreading lies about God to people since the beginning of time. He's the prince of the world because he's got a power in the world to convince people to turn away from God. What's really fascinating about how Jesus describes the Holy Spirit in this passage, he's referred to as the spirit of truth. He's the opposite of Satan. See, while Satan is the liar with the power to convince people to turn away from God, the Spirit is the truth-teller with the power to turn people back to God. So when Jesus returns to judge, he'll be judging Satan and anyone who lives under his power, anyone who lives rejecting Jesus. And Jesus says that Satan already stands condemned. Because, well, Jesus is about to put an end to sin's reign, to Satan's reign, and he'll put an end to death through his own death and resurrection. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, Satan will be robbed of his power, and the Spirit will come to work against this evil by transforming people. A spiritual battle is about to take place, and it's a battle where Satan is already the loser. Now remember, the disciples, they're they're feeling as though Jesus leaving is a problem. They're grieving because they don't want to let Jesus go. They don't want to let their source of comfort go. But Jesus is telling them that by leaving, he's going to send his spirit. His spirit, who will essentially work as Jesus' agent with the power to attack Satan. He's going to come and help these disciples fight against Satan's lies. So yeah, the, the, present, the present moment, present situation for the disciples, it's hard. It sucks. They're losing not only their best mate, but their one source of comfort. But even though it's hard, even though it sucks, Jesus leaving is actually going to be so much bigger and better for them. He's leaving so he can send his spirit to come and live in them. And not only will the spirit be with them fighting off Satan's attacks, but what we're about to see is the Spirit's also going to radically transform these disciples to have more of Jesus with them than ever before. Check out what Jesus says from verse 12. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He'll guide you into all the truth. He'll not speak on His own. He'll only speak what He hears, and He'll tell you what is yet to come. He'll glorify me because it's from me that he'll receive what he'll make known to you. And check out what Jesus says from verse, nine, uh, verse 15. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That's why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he'll make known to you. So when the Spirit comes, the disciples will not only understand fully the truth of who Jesus is and have a powerful agent on their side, but they'll actually become new people. They'll become one with Jesus, united to him. Now, this can be a tricky thing to wrap our head around. So so let me put it this way. Imagine Jesus is like an airplane and you're at the airport about to board that plane. Oh, and you also need to imagine that the coronavirus isn't affecting your flight plans at this point. Now, the the plane that you're about to board has a destination. It's, It's on its way to Melbourne. What relationship do you need to have with that plane so that you can get to Melbourne too? Do you need to be next to the plane? No. Do you need to be behind the plane? No. No, you need to be in the plane. You need to be in the plane. And once you're in that plane, whatever happens to the plane happens to you. 
This is kind of what it means to be united to Jesus. And this is the kind of relationship the disciples are going to have with Jesus after he leaves. See, right now they're with Jesus, but they're not in Jesus. They're still just standing at the airport, looking at their plane on the runway. But after Jesus leaves, the Spirit's going to come and invite these guys to step into the plane. And once they're in that plane, once they're in Jesus, it's going to completely transform who they are. See, whatever belongs to Jesus will now belong to them. They'll become God's sons just as Jesus is God's son. They'll be able to call on God as father just as Jesus can call on him as father. And it's an incredible transformation. It's only made possible so long as Jesus leaves. It's such a paradox, isn't it? Because even though the disciples, one source of comfort is about to leave, even though they're about to lose Jesus, it'll actually result in them having more of Jesus with them than ever before. So often, often I think we can think that, that, just like the disciples in John 16, surely, surely it'd be better if Jesus was still here on earth instead of in heaven. That way, people today, they wouldn't doubt Christianity. Because they'd be able to see Jesus and his miracles and, and hear his teaching firsthand. Surely it'd be better for the kingdom for Jesus to be here on earth. But what this passage shows us is actually it's far better that Jesus left and gave us his spirit because it means that we have more of Jesus than ever before. And it's knowing this, knowing we'll always have Jesus through his spirit, is what Jesus said says should cause us to have joy. Joy. And it's not just a temporary joy, but an unsnatchable joy, a joy that can never be taken from us. And that is what Jesus goes on to illustrate from verse 20. So we've already seen that from verses 16 to 20, how the disciples are confused about Jesus' news that he's leaving. And it makes sense that they're confused because the spirit of truth, he hasn't come yet to begin his work of transformation in these guys. Jesus can see that they're confused. So in an attempt to comfort them, he uses a parable, an illustration that they'll understand to paint the picture of what's to come. In verse 20, Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, you'll weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You'll grieve but your grief will turn to joy. And then from verse 21, he describes this unsnatchable joy. He compares the joy they're going to have to the joy a mum has when she meets her baby for the very first time. Let's read from verse 21. Verse 21, Jesus says, A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will be able to take away your joy. Now, I'm not really qualified to talk about childbirth because I'm not a woman, but I have been there with Lauren for the birth of both of our kids, and it's such a surreal moment, seeing how much pain and anguish mothers go through giving birth, and yet at the other side, there is new life. A real life. In Jesus' illustration here, it actually works two ways. First, there's a a real life at Jesus' resurrection. It's not a ghost or a spirit that walks out of the tomb. It's it's a real living Jesus. And when the disciples next see Jesus, they're going to see the man who's both living and real and who's conquered death with his own body and it's going to blow their mind. 
And this is going to fill them with so much joy that their current grief will be forgotten. But the second way this illustration works, not only will the disciples forget their current grief when they see Jesus resurrected, but profoundly, when the Spirit comes after Jesus leaves, we will receive new life with Jesus through his resurrection. Because remember, when we're in the plane, what happens to the plane happens to us. So if Jesus dies to rob Satan and sin of their power and is raised to life after his death, we're also raised to life with him because we're in Jesus. Jesus' death and resurrection gives us new life. And it's a new life now where we're no longer under Satan's power because we have Jesus' spirit with us to defend us. It's a new life now where Jesus' spirit becomes our spirit. It's a new life now where Jesus' father becomes our father. We're essentially reborn as children, not not children of the world, but children of God. I remember the very first time that I held our kids when they were born. I picked them up, I embraced them, and I remember thinking, I never want to let you go. See, as their dad, all I want to do is be close to them and watch over them and protect them. The moment that we become God's children, God takes us in his arms and he embraces us with an eternal love. This is the joy Jesus wants his disciples and us to know. And what better time to know this joy than right now as we live in a world of chaos? And we have no control over the coronavirus right now. Our world, it's in, it's in panic mode. C- countries are in lockdown trying to minimize the effects of something that none of us actually have control over. And what do we all want right now? Since none of us have control over the chaos, we all just want to get away from it. We want to escape. And we escape by looking for comfort in other stuff, in flicks, in food, in phones and in Facebook. The problem is, when I I go to find comfort in Grey's Anatomy, Grey's Anatomy doesn't get rid of my problem. So as soon as the episode's over, I'm back to thinking about the chaos. And the joy of of Grey's Anatomy, it's short-lived. It's snatched away. And it's worse when we go to our phones or Facebook for this comfort or joy because our news feeds, which once distracted us from our troubles, are now filled with reminders of the chaos we're living in. And the thing that used to bring us joy now causes us more hurt, more anxiety. But what Jesus wants us to know here is there's a joy that the world's chaos can't take away from us. And it's the joy of knowing Jesus of knowing who you are in Jesus, knowing you are loved by God and that your life is securely in his grip. And what kind of love do we get from God? Well, when when we're in Christ, we can expect to get the same love from God that Jesus gets. And in verse 32, Jesus tells us what that love is like. It's an unabandoning love. Look at the end of verse 32. Jesus says, verse 32, you'll leave me all alone. And he's talking about the disciples because they're going to bail on Jesus at his death when he's hanging on the cross. You'll leave me all alone, he says, yet I am not alone for my father is with me. 
My Father is with me. So even though the disciples are going to let go of Jesus when things get hard, God's love for Jesus is unabandoning. Even as the world rejects Jesus and the disciples run away from him, God doesn't abandon him. And that's incredibly comforting for us. Because if the Spirit enables us to be in Jesus, to board the plane, then it means God loves us with the same unabandoning love that he has for Jesus. Because whatever happens to our plane happens to us. Once God takes us in his arms as his children, he never lets us go. That's the comfort Jesus goes to when he's hanging on the cross, abandoned by the world. And it's the same comfort Jesus wants us to have too. But how do we get that love? How do we get that comfort? Well, that's what Jesus has been building to in this chapter. In verse 33, as his words reach their climax, Jesus shows us where we need to be to find this unsnatchable, unabandoning comfort. He says to them in verse 33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, the word peace that he uses here has this idea of tranquility tranquility it's the opposite of chaos the opposite of destruction the opposite of trouble tranquility is the place we all want to go to get away from the hurt and the noise and the chaos of the world that we live in when i hear the word tranquility i I think of a time when i'm younger and i'm camping i've just woken up early in the country and the sun's just rising over the mountains the grass is damp with dew under my feet I can hear nothing except the distant call of birds waking from their sleep. I make my way down the river to the edge of the water. And the water's just gently lapping against the rocks. There are no concerns on my mind. My mind is completely at rest. And isn't that what we're all trying to find in Netflix and in music and at the gym? Problem is, we can't find it in those things, at least not in any lasting way. So we might be able to use this stuff as a place to hide from the chaos for a bit, but these things can't get rid of the chaos. So what's the tranquility or the peace that Jesus is talking about here? And is this peace any better than what we can get from our phones or our music? Well, let's look again at what he says in verse 33. He says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So there's two things here. True peace, true tranquility can only be found in Jesus. And because it's in Jesus, it's bigger and better than the world. See, when we try to find peace and tranquility or comfort in Netflix or our music or phones or food, we're asking the world... To bring us comfort from the world. But what Jesus is wanting us to feel, wanting us to know in this passage, is that He's given us all of Himself through the Holy Spirit so that we won't run to things of this world for comfort, but so that we'd run to Him. So we fling our arms around Him and call on Him alone for comfort. When we're face to face with chaos, Jesus is calling us to take heart, He's calling us to stop and reflect and meditate on what it means that we are now in Him. That our future is now secure because we are in Him. That we're not going to be abandoned in the chaos because we're now in Him. 
that our lives are safely swaddled in God's arms because we're now in him. That no dark force or power of Satan can snatch us away from God because we're now so gripped by Jesus that we are one with him. See, it's meditating and reflecting on these truths that's going to bring us tranquility, peace, comfort from the crazy, chaotic world we live in. And we shouldn't wait to do this meditation and reflection at the end of the day or when there's a break in the chaos. But we should be coming to Jesus in the chaos, stopping and praying for this peace when we've lost control, stopping and reading our Bibles, letting God remind us who we are in Jesus when we start to feel that our identity is shaken by the world. And as church is shut down for a while, we, we now need to be actively talking to each other, reminding each other who we are in Jesus, reminding each other to take heart, not in the stuff of this world, but take heart knowing that Jesus, he has overcome the world. So one day, the music will eventually fade out. The food, it'll be consumed. Even Grey's Anatomy, which just seems to last forever, it will eventually fade to black and, and never come back. The comforts of the world can, can never ever fully satisfy us. That's why we need to depend on Jesus, on the one who's overcome the world. It's in him alone that we should seek comfort. Because although the things of this world will fade, our God won't. He'll always have a joy to give us. His peace will always be available to us. Because he's the eternal God who will neither leave us or abandon us. He doesn't come and go like the things of this world. No, he is in us. And we are in him. And this will always be true because there is no power in this world that can separate us from the one who has overcome the world. There's no force that can separate us from Jesus. In him, we are fully loved. Let's pray together. Now, gracious Heavenly Father, we, we praise you that in Jesus... There is true comfort, true peace, true tranquility that we can know. Father, we pray that, that as you reminded us of these things, Lord, and we, we live in this, this chaotic world right now, that you would help us to keep running to Jesus. When things feel like they're out of control, help us to come to him, to, to pray, to ask for this peace, to read our Bibles, be reminded of who we are in Jesus. And more than that, right now, Lord, we ask that you would help us to remind each other to do this. Especially as church, we don't get to meet on a Sunday like we used to, at least not for a while. We pray that you would help us to keep going toward each other, reminding each other of the peace that we can know in Jesus. To know that we are securely in him. That through his death on the cross and his resurrection, he has made it possible for us to be in him and him in us. We thank you for the pouring out of his Holy Spirit. We thank you for this wonderful gift that you've given us. We pray that we wouldn't waste what we've been given, but that we would rely on your spirit to comfort us and to remind us of the peace that we can know and have right now in Jesus. We pray all of these things for the glory of Jesus in his name. Amen.